0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and I am really honored today to have Ellen bryant Voigt on the podcast. Um, Ellen has very graciously agreed to come on to talk to us about her friend, her late friend, uh, Louise Glick. So this will form, I think, the last of a cluster of conversations we've had about the great poet, Louise Glick, since since her passing. Um, and Ellen is someone who uh, knew and was very close friends with Louise for many, many years. Uh, the, the poem that Ellen has chosen for us to discuss today is one called Brooding Likeness. And it's from an earlier book of Louise's than the the other poems we've talked about so far on this series. It's from a book called The Triumph of Achilles, which was published in 1985. Um, But let me tell you before we get to that poem more about our guest today. I'm sure she's well known to many of you. Um, Ellen Bryant Voigt is the author of Eight Volumes of Poetry, which have recently been assembled into a staggering and beautiful volume, her collected poems published by Norton um, just this year in 2023. It's still 2023, I think. Yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> um, it's a book um, that I was very um, moved to receive in the mail, it's a book I've already um, shared. I mean, not my copy; that one's staying with me, but that I've directed friends um, towards um, and have found them enthusiastically responding to me about. It's a book that I heartily recommend to you if you don't have it already. Um, and it collects her um, her whole career to this point. She's also the author of two books of critical prose, um, one called "The Flexible Lyric." and another called the art of syntax um from gray wolf's uh, wonderful the art of x the art of y um sort of series those books give a a poet's guide to what i think is hardest to um i was searching for the right verb here hardest to understand hardest to talk intelligently about maybe it's the sort of thing I think that if you love poetry, you have a kind of um, some kind of intuitive sense of, but that once you're pressed to put into words becomes quite difficult to sound intelligent about. What am I talking about? What is it that makes a phrase sound right what and what phrasing you know the order we put our words into syntax what that has to do with the topic of poetic lineation, the, the other organizing principle that many, most poems have. I say many or most as a qualifier because we've just talked about a, um, with Lanny Hammer, talked about a prose poem by Louise Glick. Um, and then how it is that both of those things, syntax, line break, make in their kind of strange relation thing we call lyric poetry um, Ellen and I almost met each other fairly recently, <laughs> where we were both at 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 breadloaf this summer. Ellen, as the um much belored uh guest reader, um she gave just an incandescent reading of poetry, I think on the um on the conference's first night I was in the audience for it and found myself blown away by the power of her poems and far too shy to introduce myself to her afterwards. I think then what happened, but Ellen um, can correct me later if I've got it wrong, is that I gave a lecture that I think she may not have been present for, that's right. She, I see her nodding, but that was recorded, and that she listened to the recording of, and then and then she reached out to me. Um, and it turns out, of course, we have all kinds of mutual interests and ways of thinking about poetry, and so thus began a correspondence between us. And then into the um, into the middle of it, of course, came this terrible news that um, Louise Glick, who is um, to me, a poet I admire, to Ellen, that and much, much more, um, but a very dear friend had passed away. And as I started to put these um, conversations together, I thought, who who better to talk to than one of Louise Gluck's oldest friends um, and a, a wonderful poet in her own right, Ellen Bryant Voigt. Her books have been finalists for the National Book Award, for the Pulitzer Prize, and she's been honored with fellowships from the Guggenheim and MacArthur Foundations. Um, Ellen lives in Vermont, but joins us um, tonight. We're recording at night from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, Ellen Bryant Voigt, welcome to my podcast. How are you feeling tonight?
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, it's, it's like I said, a real honor for me to have you here. Um I wonder if we might begin Ellen um you know by now I suspect um well by now most people who see fit to listen to this podcast probably have some idea already of who Louise Glück was and um what her poetry is like um I wonder if we could if we could begin with my asking you to tell us a little bit about who this person was from your perspective? That is, how was it that you came to know Louise, and well, when um, was that, and and what was your friendship like?
1: I was teaching at Goddard College, and this was in the days of you know the the hippie um, <laughs> flourishing, I guess you could say. Yeah, that there was a lot of experimental stuff that was going on, and a lot of stuff going on in the arts, and this was in Vermont. And I came there with my husband, who had a job. We had just finished doing our graduate work and, and applied. To, we had a variety of jobs we applied for. But uh, there was one available. There was one open at Goddard College. So we took it and moved to Vermont. And it was as soon as we got here, I thought, I want to stay here the rest of my life. This is where I want to be. and. So at the college at the time, there was a lot of ferment that was going on in the arts. It was a good place. We had a lot of of young poets, young fiction writers, and we had a big festival every spring. It was over a weekend, and we would ask people to come and offer them, you know, a pull-out sofa in somebody's basement and travel expenses and not a whole lot more. Yeah. But at that time, I was teaching undergraduates and I was teaching Louise's first book. Mm. So when when my colleagues asked if I had a recommendation for whom I come to the festival, I said, yes, let's bring Louise, Louise Click. And so have you did. met
0: her yet or you had I had, just-
1: no, I had never met her. I only knew about her book.
0: And do you well, remember what it was like to come across that book for the first time, or you know do you, can you recall your first re- your first experience reading her?
1: No, I don't think so. i've just yeah. read, I've read too much in the year <laughs> since. <laughs>
0: well, that's fascinating so i I interrupted your story. Go on, so you said, let's invite Louise Glick
1: Let's invite Louise, and so she came and in, in her little um memoir or her autobiography that she did for the Nobel, yeah. She says that that was the year that uh, Berryman came. And I know that Berryman did come one year while, you know, when we were doing this. I didn't remember that it was the very first year that she came. I think Jim Tate was there. I think Charlie Simic was there. They lived fairly close. If it was the year that Berryman came, well, one year Berryman did come
0: and he
1: was driven up there by his good friend, William. Meredith, who came along to try to keep him sober. So he had not been sober very long. And there was an exchange with Louise that I'll tell this story because it's, I think it gives you a sense of of her as a person at the time.
0: Yes, please.
1: uh, Berryman was was, um, very taken, of course, with her and tried at one of the parties, tried to flirt with her. And so his his attempt was to say to her, well, Louise, what do you have to recommend yourself besides your beautiful white body?
0: Oh, my God. And she
1: did not take to that well at all. And she bristled. And when she did, he chastised her and said, he said, oh, Louise, can't you be teased? And she said back, oh, John, can't you be chastised?
0: So she was
1: already, you know, very much a presence, yeah. very much clear of who she was and wow. what she was going to put up with and what she was not.
0: That's an amazing story. So, and would this have been the early nineteen seventies? I should, have, I should know these dates. Yes,
1: I think you that know. was around seventy one. Right, think that's what she says in her in right. her account, and I have no reason to think that that's yeah, yeah. Happened. So I think that that must have been. And I had been there. I came in nineteen sixty nine. So, I've been there for two years. And she makes reference in her little piece about you know the um, drunken English teachers who said, "Why don't you come back and teach?" But in fact, we had you know Goddard had over over hire, over overbooked for students. We had right. students, you know, coming out of the windows, you know, everywhere around. So we needed teachers, yes, we needed people on the faculty. And even though she had no advanced degrees, Goddard at the time prided itself on being an experimental college. So it was a place where, you know, she could teach and she found that she loved teaching and she Uh was very good at it. She was she was a passionate and dedicated teacher. So, you know, she she had then a following all the different places where she taught. She taught at Williams. She taught at Yale. She taught at, at Harvard. She taught at BU she started taught at Stanford. She's somewhere else in California, I think it wasn't mm-hmm. Berkeley, but
0: well, we've, we, we had as our, um, as in an earlier conversation in the series, we had one of her students from Yale, Elisa Gonzalez on. And so it's, it's quite moving actually to, you know, Yale as her, as her last sort of full-time, um, yes, stop yes. to hear about that. And then to, to hear you talk about what the very beginning of her teaching career yes. was like no, several decades. Like, right away,
1: years. right away, right away. And,
0: and so the did. two of you struck up a friendship, I take yes, it. Yes, we yeah. did.
1: Well, one of the things she also talks in her, this autobiographical piece about the coincidence of things. When she, when she came to Vermont, that in 1971, then she had been, she had been at Provincetown and that was not a happy place to be at the time because she was not writing down there and found it very hard to write and she had been a a student herself of Stanley Kunitz and that she was very afraid that this was the end of her writing that she would not write anymore and then she talks about having gone to a music camp when she was in high school so when she came in 1971 for this um occasion of a weekend festival, she felt at home, she felt very much at home, and she also started to write again, and teaching encouraged that. So she found that she was good at teaching, and she liked teaching, and so that sort of released something in her for her own work.
0: We're, we're accustomed, I guess, to hearing of people in general, but perhaps writers in particular, who, quote unquote, have to teach? Um, that teaching is a sort of demand that pulls away from the energy one has left over for writing. But the, in the story that you're telling, that it, for Louise at least, in this particular way, it was somewhat different. Teaching enabled the creative process for It
1: totally did.
0: Yes. Yeah. And something about Vermont. I mean, I noticed that you said that once you got there, you to to Goddard, you thought. Oh, uh, this feels right. I want to stay.
1: I want to and, stay. That's and right. And
0: evidently, she did too. Do you think it was some of the same things that were attractive to you and to her? I mean, were you was your experience yes. of Vermont similar? Do you think?
1: I think so. I mean, it's uh, the thing about Vermont is that it's it's physically very, very beautiful. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: if you are drawn to landscape, there's you know, there's no better place to be. And there's also a tolerance. She talks about this a little bit, too, a, a tolerance for for eccentricity. People will leave you alone. If you want solitude, they will let you have solitude. I mean, we laugh about that, that, you know, the taciturn Yankee, and you get them started talking, they won't shut up. I mean, they will talk on and on and on. But uh-huh. if, if they sense that you would rather be quiet and be still, they will let you do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um let's move on a bit through the years as, you know, you both um be- began to spend more and more time in each other's company. Um What was it like to be uh, friends? Uh, what was it like to share meals together, to share days together, to share? Well,
1: she was a great cook. Mm-hmm. And she also, whatever was left over from the anorexia, the anorexia, really that was about control i mean that apparently that is what anorexia is more than anything to do with food
0: and I should say, sorry to interrupt, but just for people who are curious, that the the piece that Ellen has referred to a couple of times now, the autobiographical essay that um, Louise Glick wrote for um, once she won the Nobel Prize and that's posted on their website, I, I will make available um, to listeners so that you can read it as well. And in that piece, she discusses um, uh, suffering uh, from anorexia as... Um, uh, in in late adolescence and, yes. and yes. recovering with um with some effort and um difficulty from that from, a
1: great deal of difficulty yes
0: so i sorry for the interruption i just wanted to make sure people knew what we yes. were referring to go on
1: yes, and the other thing too is that um while she was in provincetown on her on a trip back to the city to New York city, she had a grand mal seizure And over a period of time, it took a little while for it to be diagnosed. But then she was diagnosed with epilepsy. So Louise didn't drive. And one of the things about living in Vermont, especially if you live out in the countryside, which is where Plainfield is, you need some friends who will drive you around. So I was one of those friends and uh, could drive her around. And so I got to spend a lot of time with her that way.
0: <laughs> was she talkative as a as a passenger?
1: Yeah, she was. She was talkative as a passenger. Yeah. She was.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. um it's I, I feel as though you learn a lot about somebody when you when you drive with them. You do. Yeah. You
1: do. It's also, you know, it is that therapeutic model where yes. it was Sullivan, I think, where you both both people are facing forward. And you face forward on the same object, and then as both are recording the object, then that allows for more you know, peripheral exchange, something like that, I guess.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. And it's exactly right. There is a kind of, it's not quite the, the psychoanalytic model of not seeing you know, the analyst being out of sight altogether. The, the interlocutor is there in your peripheral vision, yes. and, you, and you share an object of attention.
1: I found this with my teenage children. Very often that this is when I could find out a whole lot, much more forthcoming Uh when I was not, my gaze was not directed at them, but we were together focused on something else. And then in that space, these other things could happen
0: it it's it's such a beautiful image that you know of course I want to linger with it and i'll I don't have a poet's instinct, and I'll probably kill it of its beauty if we're not careful but there is something i think in this image about um where where one i'm tempted to read it allegorically also that is that there's some sense in which the two the shared object of attention is not just the road ahead but is um poetry or 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 life you know yes yeah
1: and that was the time then i mean over these years when we were exchanging manuscripts who were each other's first readers Uh just you know so and we could do that fairly easily and i could just drive over to her house and you know take the latest drafts of something and show them to her and she could show me hers and so
0: and, and what was did. that what was that experience like of sharing oh, work amazing. in progress? She's an
1: amazing reader. Yeah. She's an amazing reader. She's also she's completely intolerant. She was completely intolerant of anything conventional. Uh-huh. So she would keep you on your toes and so
0: whether those conventions were the styles of the day or traditional yeah. meters and things like yeah, that? Or, yeah, I mean,
1: to just do it because it was a convention,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, that was uh, anathema to her.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, I take it that was a useful perspective for you to have. It was. Yeah. And what do you think... And maybe it's a strange question to ask, and these things are always easier. It's easier to answer the question that I just asked you, yes. But but now if I turn the tables and say, what is it that you think your attention might have contributed to Louise, where she was at that moment in her career as a poet?
1: I think um, clarity. Mm -hmm. She, She had a great tolerance for ambiguity, higher than mine. Right higher than mine. So I think that, I mean, where I would press her, I would say, who is this speaking now? Who is this person? Who is this person? And particularly when she got into the use of myth, when she was using myth, I didn't know those myths as well as she did. I didn't have anybody read them to me when I was, you know, a child, which she did. So
0: But it sounds like that perspective must have been an important one because, of course, not every reader would either, right? Yeah. It's got to be there in the poem if it's going to work.
1: I hope so. I hope that I brought up her that.
0: Well, I'm sure that was a a beautiful gift. Let me ask a a different kind of question. Um, You know, I invited you on and you so graciously um, accepted, and then you thought a little bit about um, different poems we might discuss. Um, what led a a number of, or a couple of them anyway, came from the same volume. I I wonder if you might be willing to, to talk a bit about, um, it's always an impossible thing to say, um, oh, come on my podcast and you can pick one poem. Um, what factors were you considering in, in making your decision of poem, you know?
1: Well, I wanted um, I thought to pick something characteristic of this book, why this book, I guess it would be the follow-up question on that. I mean, she had already done you know two other books, very well received And she's not yet she's not leaded up. she's not she hasn't yet gotten to Ararat right. And Ararat is the one that she had a lot of pushback on. Because there again, I mean, you know, you if you're gonna if you're gonna be be very careful, if you're gonna be scornful, don't be scornful of this Jewish culture that you grew up in. Right. So I mean I don't know that it's entirely that, but you know, there were that a lot of, some of it. a lot of people who had praised the other, the earlier books who then really disagreed about Ararat. including punits and in his view, of course, mattered a lot to her. Right.
0: And, and so um, I, um, she was working on these poems while you two were finding your way as friends while you were on those car rides together. Yes,
1: jamming around.
0: I I know that there's um, at least one poem in this volume that um, seems to have been dedicated to, to an EV, whom I suspect is 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 our guest today. That this the poem that we'll talk about in a moment isn't that poem, um, but uh, but clear anyway that the friendship it runs must run throughout the book. Um, I, I have one last question before we get to the poem itself, Ellen, and I hope it's not too strange a question to ask, but. Um, you know, you lost your friend. And um, as anyone who's lost someone dear to them knows, it's it's a dreadful thing. And people do all kinds of things in the wake of such losses. I wonder if you've been spending any time reading Louise's poems since, well, since learning of her illness or finding out about her death, which followed so Sort of shockingly swiftly upon her diagnosis. If if you have been reading her poems since sh- she passed, I wonder what that experience is like has been like for you. Um, has it has it been a comfort? Is that not the right word for it? Has it been something else? You, no, you just, not
1: a comfort. Um, mm-hmm. I wish it were a comfort. I have a I have a friend who's about my age. Who, who said to me when she learned about Louise's death she said well you know at least you ha- you know you writers at least you have the you have the poems you have the record but I have not found it a comfort I have found it not a comfort there won't be any more and that is profound to me that's the profound loss you know that Yeah, we do have all of those, Yeah, but we won't have more. Right.
0: Well, I'm so dreadfully sorry for your loss and and for all of our loss. um,
1: It is. I think it's a great loss to poetry. I mean, she was a great poet. She set out to be a great poet. It cost her minor league. There were other things that she put second. She was determined that she would be a great poet, and she knew she could be. And you know, when you're young, I mean, we all think the same thing. We all think, well, you know, let's you know, I can be hot stuff. but Let's, <laughs> I mean, just do whatever I can to do the best I can. Yeah. But she had a supreme confidence, and and she had a she had a kind of faith. She had a belief in, I guess, destiny. That's very Greek. I mean, you know, that's yeah. another reason why you know the poems out of this book. Seem to me really catch her at that age, you know. It's sort of this is destined. This is destined to be. You know, it might as well be something out of the Iliad or something. You know, here's this one, and here's this Greek and this guy, and how would you not go out in battle? Of course you would, you know, because otherwise, you know, you would be dishonoring your, you right. know, what what you what you meant to do.
0: Yeah, it's such um I <laughs> I um I find I find my, so much of interest in her poems the the kind of her- heroic um or f- um, the, the the nature of the poems or the devotion to this sort of feeling of kind of fate or destiny is something that um is is quite palpable here. Um, I'm, I'm laughing in part because I know she's told the story more than once of having gone to a fortune teller. Um, I took her. You took her. Well, then you tell it. the story.
1: <laughs> well, this was a, a local woman named Luvia, Luvia Laferia, French-Canadian, yeah. and she was known for finding things. If you lost something, she was known for finding it. So it, all of us had got it. Of course, everybody had got it. We were totally into that. We were totally into right. any kind of system of superstition. And, you know, this was the age of Aquarius. That's 1971,
0: what we right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so you took her to Luvia. And I
1: took her to Luvia, yes.
0: And how did that go?
1: Well, Luvia told her, Whatever the number of books, she talks about that, too, in that piece.
0: Yeah, right. She says you'll write five more books or something. Yeah, whatever five it was,
1: books. it was yeah. an exact number. Yeah. yeah. I mean, where that was one of the questions. And with Luvia, when you went, you always wrote out questions for her. And during the, the reading, Luvia would hold your hand and pretend to be reading your palm. But she didn't really read your poem. We don't know what she did. But the thing about Luvia was everybody knew she would answer all three of your questions before the end of the session without you having to tell her what those questions were. Amazing. So I had been to her before, and I have my own poem about going to Luvia. But in this case, she said to Louise, Well, I mean, one of Louise's questions was, How many books will I write? You know, will I be famous? How many books will I write? And Luvia said, You will write five, or whatever it was, the number. Louise. I think that's
0: it. I I don't know if it's five more or five total, but yeah, the number is five. It's
1: total. So at first, she's very pleased with this. Well, great, because she writes. Five books? Yeah. Sure, that's a lot. We both wrote very, very slowly, and we're thinking, well, that'll be pretty good, you know, get five books out of it.
0: Yeah. She and she it, said she did the math, right? Okay, one every so-and-so so years. That'll yeah. get me to the age of whatever, and that's yeah. a good run. Yeah. And
1: then when she hit five, yeah. then it was doomsday because then she right. thought, oh, I'll never write another book.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's, but, it, of
1: course, that didn't stop her. She just changed gears, and that's where, you know, there's that wonderful poem that says, and then I moved to Cambridge, you know, yeah. and that's the way we began Vita Nova, you know, yeah. a new life. Yeah. We have a new life.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad I I'm so glad I brought that up. I hadn't realized it was you who took her. Uh, I but of course I like should have known. Um, okay. Um Ellen Bryant Voigt, let's let's listen to Louise read the poem you've chosen for us today. The poem is called Brooding Likeness. Um Listeners, it's, it's a brief poem. It's just 13 lines, I think. Um, I will make the text of it available to you as well, so you can look in the, um, in the episode notes and click on a link I'll put for you there if you want to look at it as we listen to Louise read. Um, once, once the recording has finished, we'll talk about it. Here's Louise Glick. This is a poem
2: called Brooding Likeness. I was born in the month of the bull, the month of heaviness, or of the lowered, the destructive head, or of purposeful blindness. So I know, beyond the shadowed patch of grass, the stubborn one, the one who doesn't look up, still senses the rejected world. It is a stadium, a well of dust, And you who watch him, looking down in the face of death, what do you know of commitment? If the bull lives, one controlled act of revenge, be satisfied that in the sky, like you, he is always moving, not of his own accord, but in the world's eyes, like grit caught on a wheel, like shining freight.
0: So that's Louise Gluck reading brooding likeness. And I just noticed, as perhaps you did, Ellen, that there's one change. There's a change. We can come to that. So yeah, okay. in the world's eyes, she says, right? Okay. We'll come back to that. Okay. Uh, um, what do you hear in her voice, Ellen? Just in the sort of I mean in the in the literal speaking voice here, that as you listen to the recording, what do you notice? What was it like to listen to Louise read a poem?
1: Well, I mean, again, I think that this was a, a period in which her reading style was very um, vatic, you uh-huh. know, it was sort of like the voice of the Sphinx. And so, I mean, I, I can hear that.
0: That wasn't what she sounded like in the car as you were. Not you like driving driving in the car. No. Yeah. no,
1: The other the other poem that I had talked to you about mm-hmm. out of this book that did sound more like in the car is the ba- poem that poem called Baskets.
0: Yeah, which right. We
1: we thought would be hard to find, hard to locate. So Might we be,
0: yeah. had a little
1: bit long to do, but that had more of her wit in it, her humor. This doesn't have a lot of humor in it. This is you know this is. <gasps> You know, the, the voice. Where of, is
0: this voice coming yeah. from almost? Yes, it sounds like. Yeah. And
1: it's also, I can, the other thing I can tell you right away, I was born in the month of the bull.
0: What a line.
1: The month of heaviness. What that is, it's a reference to, I mean, Louise was quite an expert in astrology. And the, so she's talking about the signs of the zodiac. So this is the zodiac, this is a Taurus. I'm also a Taurus. We were both Tauruses, so that's what that is.
0: Yeah, Louise w- was, was was born on April twenty second. Was her yeah her April twenty second? Yeah. So just at the beginning of Taurus, there. I know that because I'm an Aries, which runs from March twenty yes. first to April nineteenth. So yes,
1: that's right.
0: So uh, so yeah, the month is, and it's funny, I wanna say, well, April is partly the month of Aries too, but no, not for her. It was for her. it's Taurus. It, yeah. It was
1: Taurus, the month of heaviness, the Lord, the destructive head, purposeful blindness. Yeah. All of those are that's those are Taurian characteristics, you know, that Taurus is very loyal. Yeah. It's also completely stubborn. So I know beyond the shadowed patch of grass, the stubborn one, the one who doesn't look up, still senses the rejected world. It is a stadium, a well of dust. Yeah. That's again, this is not voice from the car.
0: No, I this wouldn't is not think
1: voice in the car.
0: I wouldn't think so. Um, the <laughs> There's something about those opening lines. I mean, I, I so yeah, it's not the voice in the car. Then the question I think that follows is, well, what is it? How can we describe what it is? There's something in those opening lines that's sort of announcing. I mean, in a way, it's it it's sort of uh, one way to think about it. Anyway, is that the the sort of project it's embarking on is in a way not so different from the project embarked upon. In the autobiographical essay that you uh, that we've referred to now a couple of times on the Nobel site that says, "You know I was born in such and such a place and i these were my siblings and these were my parents and so forth it It's also not so different from what might feel like a standard or kind of fundamental project that lyric poetry has to say who I am right exactly. right, yeah, but this is such a peculiar version of that i was born in the month of the bull the month of heaviness so i get the kind of astrological taurian attributes um i'm curious about well for one thing what you think heaviness as a concept might have meant to louise in this moment um did, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to leave the question at that and and see what that word is doing for you. Heaviness. What did? What do you think heaviness meant to this poet? Too hard a question. <laughs> because she seems to me to be a poet who's sort of cutting away, sort of often interested in cutting away, stripping down. Heaviness seems. Surprising to me in that context. You have any thoughts about that word?
1: Yeah, I don't have a good reading of it mm-hmm. beyond what you have. I mean, okay. I, I...
0: Well, what follows it is or of the lowered. Actually, the way she pronounced that word, it almost sounded like the, the word "lowered." Almost sounded to me like the word "lord." <laughs> Lord, the lowered destructive head, or of purposeful blindness. The series of the or, or kind of rhythm yes. is interesting to me. Um,
1: or of, or of, or yeah. of, the month of, or of, or of, the yeah. month of, of what? The month of, this is a little list, a month of heaviness, the month or of the Lord, the destructive head, or of purposeful blindness. Take your pick. But they're they're not different from one another. Ah, that was the
0: question. Yeah, they're the same, you think. They're the same. Um, And that,
1: to my mind, that's sort of foreshadowing what she does at the end, like grit caught on a wheel, like shining freight. Let's say it twice. Let's say it twice. It's very Uh, insistent.
0: Oh, what a beautiful word for it. It's an insistent poem.
1: Very insistent. Very insistent. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and, and right in the middle too, this is this kind of turn, which to me is sort of reminiscent of, you know, what can happen with a sonnet. Mm
0: -hmm. You
1: will watch him looking down in the face of death. What do you know of commitment? Yeah. What do you know of commitment? That's a way of saying, I know commitment. You don't know commitment. I know it. It's again, it's kind of announcement.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, so, let let's pause there for a minute. And so this comes just about the midpoint of the poem. And you who watch him looking down in the face of death, what do you know of commitment? Um, th- This is a question that doesn't, I don't think has a kind of literal answer, but so we're getting the sense of the I here is this kind of, well, it's in some sense, Louise. In some sense, it's this mythic kind of Vatican, oracular sort of speaker who is the you or what who who is the who is that i setting herself up in opposition to like what's that you like is it
1: the rest of the world uh uh-huh the whole rest of the world everybody else in the world
0: Uh uh-huh
1: louise did have that side which was almost imperious Uh
0: you know uh-huh. Where she and imperious is a lovely word for it. Is it also a condition of suffering? I mean to be alone, to think of yourself as Oh yeah. Separate from the rest of the world.
1: Yeah. The catchphrase in, in our house was always, you would not want to be Louise you know you would not want her life you would not want to be louise no it's so again that's back to that sense of destiny yeah it's destined this is the way it should be there's something that gets fixed and it gets fixed early on you know whether I and i don't know entirely what those things were beyond right. what she's written about clearly the, you know her mother's fear that came from the loss of the first child. Yeah, that you know then focused on Louise as that something would happen to Louise.
0: Louise has but said then, that, that you she, know,
1: and as Louise said about herself, she said that she was a hypochondriac. Yeah, and I think it just instilled an anxiety in her. But she countered that with this sense of destiny. I don't know any other word for it.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Destiny as a – well, <clears throat> I say this as someone who can can be understood as a hypochondriac myself, so I'm speaking from a position of deep sympathy here. But hypochondriasm is, is also – I mean, in a way, it's a kind of belief in destiny too. It's just that the destiny isn't good, right? You think, oh, this – I I am fated for something awful. Something awful will happen to me. I'm waiting for signs of it. There's a kind of paranoid reading where everything seems a sign of catastrophe. Yes. So what you say, though, is that there is this other kind of destiny that Louise is imagining, sort of willing into existence or imagining or apprehending somehow that she's fated for something great Yes. And it's a kind of counterweight against the worry or the anxiety.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes, I think so. And it also, I mean, I can tell you this that the last week of her life, Mm. what she, we were expecting her to come back to Vermont. You know, we had terrible floods this summer. And so she had to leave and go back to Cambridge. And she was due to come in october and on october the 1st she wrote to me and said i'm not sure that i'm i'm going to be able to make our october date because i've just been diagnosed with metastatic cancer and i wrote back immediately and said metastatic cancer H- had you been ill and her she responded right away and said it was found on an ultrasound that she had a very good doctor and she had had some some mild but persistent symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so he had just, as a precaution, he had done an ultrasound and that's when he found that it was metastasized already. And her comment about that to me was that she felt very calm. She said, I feel very calm. She said, surprisingly, I feel very calm. And she said, I think living to be 80 is achievement enough. And then she also said, she said, I've had a good life. So there's something in that about, you know, even then, right at the, you know, toward the end that, and i think i mean I believe all of that was absolutely true for her
0: it's just incredibly moving um there's um you know uh i i have been um i'm not i i don't want to make this about me i i have been um the public and have written about the the loss of my sister who also had great anxiety f- over the course of her life leading up to the time of her diagnosis about health issues. And so I sort of witnessed firsthand what it was like to see someone who could su- suffer in this way be told, well, this time it's actually happening.
1: Yes, that's right. One of, her, one of the exchanges with Louise that she sent to me and she said, she said, at least I know now I won't have, and then she listed a whole number of things. She said, I won't have to worry about, I won't have to worry about Alzheimer's. I won't have to worry about debilitating stroke. And she named them all. And by naming them all, it was like there you could see it, all of that dread.
0: She'd that, been it, carrying it, that around.
1: Yeah, for all those years.
0: Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, almost impossible to, to to return to the poem at a moment like this, but I think actually there's something in it for us. Uh, so I don't want to, I mean, I'm just so, I'm so kind of, um, I keep using this word, moved by, by your account of what Louise was saying in those last days. And I'm reading the lines here somewhat earlier from, where, where we were just focused. So I know beyond the shadowed patch of grass, the stubborn one, the one who doesn't look up. Again, I guess she's still describing the sort of hertorian self or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. That, that one who doesn't look up, then back to her words, still senses the rejected world. Yeah. So what are we to make of that? Ellen, she is rejected. She has, on the one hand, rejected the world because she's so intently, stubbornly focused on her own little parcel of land or some patch of life, but she still senses it, as it were, apprehends it, peripherally or something, yeah.
1: Yeah. It is a stadium, a well of dust. Yeah. See that has no that has no sensuality in it, you know. And she was. She loved to eat. She loved to cook, you know. She loved music. Those are also Taurian, you know, earth earthbound traits.
0: But there was this side of her that had, in its private moments, these that that image. Uh, a stadium, a well of dust. It's just an, it's almost an image of emptiness or something. Total
1: no? emptiness. Yes. Total emptiness.
0: So then we get the, and you who watch them, that, those, the, that address which you, you're taking, and I'm totally persuaded by it, that you is the rest of the world, everyone who isn't me. You know.
1: Yes, everyone else.
0: The, the, then we get those lines. What do you know of commitment? So she knows commitment. What do you know
1: commitment? That's it.
0: If the bull lives one controlled act of revenge, revenge. Was 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 her I mean, is there a way of understanding her creative impulse as being allied with revenge in some sense, Ellen? Or what are you getting out of that word? Revenge.
1: I don't know. I, I really don't don't know about revenge other than it seems to me that this bull here is a yeah. bull from you know the um, bullfights. Yeah right? Is't this what the, that is?
0: M- maybe so. I mean, I was thinking about um, the you know Taurus and so on and and if mythology is important to her here and I'm not sure that it is so the the, the Greek myth,
1: the Minotaur.
0: Well, there's that, and it's sort of related to that. There is um, so Zeus um, becomes interested in Europa. Yes. And he, and in order to take her away, to kidnap, to you know, depending on what era of translation or commentary this is, the word would either be seduce or rape. But in order to take her away he transforms into a bull and joins the flock and yeah. she she pets him and she gets up on his back and then he flies away with her and takes her to Crete yeah. where the Minotaur... So then there is the, the Minotaur story too. So, the, you know, and then, you know, the the constellation of the bull, Taurus, has something to do with that story at Yeah, least. I
1: think that that's very probable because there's also, there's a poem in here about... Is it Daphne who turns mm. into a tree?
0: Yeah. yeah, 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 and well, and we know of her long-standing interest in Greek mythology. T- to say nothing of the fact that the, the book is called "The Triumph of Achilles." I mean, yeah. clearly, that's yeah. the, the that's landscape right. where we're, we're yeah. in. Um, I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know if that helps with with revenge. It, I do get that. I hear it almost in the voice too—that idea of a sort of sustained act of control. And there being a kind of um, rage in it or something, a kind of controlled fury. Yes,
1: yes.
0: is like what she sounds like. Be satisfied that in the sky, like you, he is always moving. Then we get to the final lines.
1: Well, then the changed line, not of his own accord, but through the black field. Uh Uh-huh. And then you, what she read, it was changed, right? Yeah. Different?
0: Yeah. You know what? It's short enough. We can listen to it again. Let's listen to it one more time and then we'll talk (laughs) about the ending.
1: Especially that place right there. Yeah, good. This is a poem called Brooding
2: Likeness. I was born in the month of the bull, the month of heaviness, or of the Lord, the destructive head or of purposeful blindness so I know beyond the shadowed patch of grass the stubborn one the one who doesn't look up still senses the rejected world it is a stadium a well of dust and you who watch him looking down in the face of death What do you know of commitment? If the bull lives, one controlled act of revenge. Be satisfied that in the sky, like you, he is always moving, not of his own accord, but in the world's eyes, like grit caught on a wheel, like shining freight.
0: In the world's eyes, rather than through the black field.
1: Well yeah, you're the just, you're you're
0: the poet, Ellen. What is did she make a good change?
1: No, I don't like that change. <clears throat> it shifts the point of view.
0: Sorry, you don't like which? I take it that the that my assumption, and we should find I should find out. I can and will find out. Not right now, but afterwards. And I'll let you know in the episode notes and I'll um when I put out the episode what the date of the recording is. But what I'm sort of, a, my working theory here, Ellen, and you tell me if this sounds right, is that the reading must be before the published version of the book. That, that she, that I, I doubt, unless you think it's likely that she's the kind of poet who would have done it, that she would have published it in one form and then changed it in a reading afterwards. I think maybe more likely that she had a version that she was reading and she made a final change for publication.
1: That is more likely.
0: So, well, in any case, we, we, we don't need to trouble ourselves with which came first, but you prefer what's printed rather than what she read.
1: I do. Because Tell I us why. What she read changes the point of view. Yeah. But, but through the black field, then be satisfied that in the sky, like you, he is always moving, not of his own accord, but through the black field, He's that's, that's where he is. I'm telling you. Yeah. If this is the case.
0: Through the black field is a really beautiful way to just des- yes. to describe the night sky as a fi- yes. a black field. Totally. Yeah.
1: Yes, it goes back to that uh to the whole thing with the zodiac.
0: Like grit, yeah, grit caught, caught on a wheel.
1: wheel. Like shining freight in the doubling there too. Yeah. So I like that much better than but in the world's eyes. Yeah. Not of his own accord, but in the world's eyes, like grid caught on a wheel. The world thinks it's like grid caught on a wheel. No, the speaker thinks it. Yeah. I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um and the poem thinks it.
1: The <laughs> poem thinks it. Yes.
0: Now, now we think it too. Yes. The um I agree with you. Um, so I, I I get to hear, I get to be the critic here. I I think I think this I think the version in the book is better. Um I, I want to stay with the last line a moment longer. There's that doubled simile like grit caught on a wheel, like shining freight in a way. It sort of reminds me of that, um, anaphoric structure that we were getting earlier or of the lowered or of the, this it's like, yes, this, right. and it's what you were describing earlier is the sort of insistent method. Um, are are those, of
1: those. do those, those
0: two similes feel equivalent to you? I mean, talk about their relation to each other. The ones in the final end is like grit caught on the, on a wheel. Is, does that, how does that feel to you relative to like shining freight? Is one a clarification of the other or two swings of the ax at the same tree or,
1: you know, I think the second two swings of the mm-hmm. ax. Grit caught on the wheel takes us back to the astrology and the yeah. sky and what's up there. Uh,
0: the wheel, the turning wheel of the stars, in other yeah, words. the stars. Yeah. And Though she, it's, on, it's on the other hand such a kind of um, homely or, I mean, taken out of context of the poem, yeah. right? Let's just say you encountered that phrase somewhere in the world, like grit caught on a wheel. You wouldn't be thinking of celestial things. You would be thinking of the thing that got stuck in your tire. But Amen. then
1: shining gives us stars again.
0: Yeah, it does. Shining freight. Yeah.
1: But she does that a lot. And sure. like if you you know, if I go uh, two poems down free. Yeah. to another poem, I'll just read you this little piece that says, and this is about um, Mary. It's about Christmas, <clears throat> winter morning. She says, So the thoughts went on from each question came another question, like a twig from a branch, like a branch from a black trunk. So yeah. two things, two things.
0: Two things. Yeah, there is something, um, I love the word insistent. I also want to say that it feels somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how, as I start to say this out loud, related to me to this idea of the fatedness of life. Like if I say, if if I believe that life works that way, even if it's um, a kind of leap of faith, or a thing I'm willing to believe in order to do my work, then I might think, well, if I've described something well once, if I describe it well again, it will be sort, it will sort of necessarily be kind of isomorphic, isomorphic with it. It will be the same thing again, but from a different point of view, because because I've caught the real, the way things really are. I'm I'm sort of attached to. It's the sort of notion of fadedness again.
1: Well, isn't that one of the primary principles of rhetoric, anyway? Is that you, you know, say it once, you say it twice. I so. You emphasize, right?
0: I think so. I say think it once, so. and
1: you say it again. Say what you said. Say yeah. what you're going to say, and then say what you said, and say it again.
0: <laughs> yeah, but the trick of it, of course, I mean, I I say this as someone who, um, in my day job. You know, often finds myself teaching college students how to write good essays and that kind of thing. And I say, you know, I don't want to hear at the end of an essay, (laughs) you simply repeat yourself. Yeah. But she doesn't simply repeat herself. She she does she sort of what the magic of it is that she she says it one way and then she says it another way, which you'd think couldn't be the same way, but then somehow it is. Like grit caught on a wheel, like shining freight. Um, yeah, um, There. it's, 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 there's that last phrase of this poem is just, uh, kind of magical for me right now. Um, and, and, and maybe there's something kind of self-descriptive about it too, you know, the way we've learned to talk about simile is as having tenor and vehicle, you know, the shining freight is like the, is like the tenor being carried by the vehicle of the simile. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, Well.
1: There's also, there's wonderful sounds in those last two lines. Talk
0: about them, please.
1: Well, um, the black field, like grit caught on a wheel, Mm. with those long E's, like shining freight, the F from field coming back into freight. Grit and freight is another internal rhyme. So there's it's very thick in the sounds of it.
0: Ellen, you were saying earlier that Louise was not someone who who would abide conventionality in poetry or 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 maybe in other parts of life, but we were talking about poetry. So we don't I don't I wouldn't think of her as a and she's not a poem a poet who was writing in sort of traditional meters or rhyme schemes or that kind of thing. Um I think it might be useful to for our listeners um, to hear you say a word about this moment, you know, relative to this moment in in that you've just identified for us. We some listeners might be under a misapprehension that on the one hand, there's formal poetry that's old-fashioned, that has rhyme and meter and so on. And then on the other hand, there's free verse, which just does whatever it wants to do <laughs> that seems obviously to i mean in your laughter i think you get the point i'm i um, asking you in a way to elucidate F- free verse isn't really free is it um, but it's finding its own form
1: well the question is free to do what yeah you have to say free to do what yeah it's not really free from free from or free to do something
0: uh-huh.
1: I think it was wasn't it uh Benjamin Franklin who said that. Right. Right? Something about you got to say when you talk about freedom is it freedom from or is it freedom for? Right. So <clears throat> one of the things about free free verse is that you have an opportunity to see how you can play with the different elements you already made reference to the elements of the relationship between the line, the rhythm of the line, yeah. the rhythm of the syntax, where is that going to p- play out in the poem? How do you want that to play out in the poem?
0: Yeah. <laughs> and here, um, just looking over the poem, I mean, um, this is maybe not the time to do it exhaustively, but just at a glance, those first lines sound, uh, I mean, we don't come to a full stop at, at at the end of any of them, I mean, they, there are commas at the end of those first few lines, but they do feel like self-contained sort of syntactical units. I was born in the month of the bull, line break, the month of heaviness, comma, line break, or of the lowered, comma, destructive head, line break, right? Later in the poem, though, there are these really enjambed lines like, it is, line break, a stadium.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> or, um, you know, if the bull lives line break one controlled act of revenge yeah Yeah. so so there's a kind of um closed sort of self-enclosed feeling at the beginning and then later as the poem moves on this kind of unfurling motion that comes into it yes um and you know um we can think of uh we can think of the relation between meter and free verse, just as you were saying, as as it pertains to a poem, but, but we might also think of it as it relates to the terms of a life. You know, you can live a life according to some scheme that has been set that you then interestingly fulfill or don't or whatever, or you can make it up as you go.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: But you have form anyway. Sure. Um and you've given us the picture of um well a, a, if nothing else of of a of a beautifully formed poem and of a, a beautifully f- formed life and um I wish there were more poems, and i wish I wish more than anything there were more life um, i I'm really grateful to you, Ellen, for sitting with me this last hour and and talking about your friend, and talking about this poem. And I just want to thank you for that, and I want to I offer my most sincere condolences to you for your loss.
1: Thank you. Well, thank you for including me in your podcast about her. <laughs>
0: um, m- might I ask you, I mean, we've heard the poem more than once, but I want to hear it once without interruption okay. in your voice. Would you be willing to read it as a, as a way yes. to say goodbye? Thank you.
1: Brooding Likeness. I was born in the month of the bull, the month of heaviness, or of the Lord, the destructive head, or of purposeful blindness. So I know, beyond the shadowed patch of grass, the stubborn one, the one who doesn't look up, still senses the rejected world. It is. A stadium, a well of dust. And you who watch him, looking down in the face of death, what do you know of commitment? If the bull lives one controlled act of revenge, be satisfied that in the sky, like you, he is always moving, not of his own accord, but through the black field. Like grit caught on a wheel, like shining freight.
0: Well, Alan Bryant Voigt, thank you again for this conversation. Thank you for that beautiful reading of the poem. Um, thank you for spending the time and giving us your your thank words. You, oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, listeners, uh, for listening along. Uh, be well, everyone, and stay tuned for more.